So Money Episode 928, Bethany Baines, Director of Strategic Partnerships at Google and founder of Breadwinning Women at Google. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. One of the pieces of this conversation that's so critical for us to give voice to is just saying the term breadwinner, saying the term stay-at-home dad, sole breadwinner, primary parent. You know, my husband says he's retired, but it took us a while to figure out what the right language and verbiage was to describe our family. You know, I love a good breadwinning woman story, and today... We certainly got one. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Bethany Baines is our special guest, and she is the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Google and has been with the company for 15 years. She's worked to overcome gender bias in tech and is a strong women's advocate. She's also a breadwinning mom and has what she calls a flip family. When her husband was laid off, she says it felt natural for him to become a stay-at-home dad, and they soon realized that many of their friends and family saw it differently. Bethany has since founded the Breadwinning Women at Google organization and has built quite the community at the company around this increasingly popular topic. Here's Bethany Baines. Bethany Baines, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be connected with you. You're doing incredible work at Google, but also in serving the breadwinning women community. You're doing a lot of work internally with Google, connecting other women with each other to talk about the realities of making more in your relationship. And you speak from experience, so lots to discuss on that front. Um, but you're mm-hmm. such a dynamic human being. And this is a financial show, so let's start with a financial question. I read that when you were first starting your career and you moved to New York uh, in your 20s, as so many of us do, that you had just a you know five or six month stash in your bank account to help you make ends meet. And so let's start from the beginning of everything, as so many of us have that beginner story and how we made it work uh, with, with, with your limited resources. Take us back to that time in your life and what kept you going and what ultimately led to your, uh, your climbing of your success. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, gosh, it's hard to remember all the way back then, but yes, I had a very cheap apartment, um, which was a friend of mine from college who had a roommate who moved out. And I think our rent was 400 bucks a month for my room. Um, and I had about $2,000 savings. So I was like, okay, that's five months rent. Mm -hmm. I can make this work and I'm going to come down and move in. Um, and I really had never wanted to move to New York. I never pictured myself living in the city, even though I grew up, um, in Connecticut. Um, it just was never a city that I felt uh, attracted to or that I would plant roots in. So, um, as life would have it, it turns out it's where I've been living for the past 20 or so years. Um, But when I moved into my friend's apartment, it was really my first time being completely independent right after college. Um, And, uh, you know, I really credit the women that I was close with at the time because we were all living independently. None of us were getting handouts from our parents. We were all just trying to make it work. And, there were days when, you know, the big night out was splitting a burrito at Benny's Burrito or when, you know, there wasn't as much money, you went and split a piece of pizza before you went to the bars. But just figuring out how to manage your finances and, you know, honestly make it work. And I think I started working at a temp agency within a week of when I arrived uh, in New York and did some, you know, crazy jobs there here, just pinch hitting for receptionists that were out of office or whatever the case may be. And one of those gigs turned into a full-time job. And then I just continued to work full-time since then. And at Google, you've had almost every job. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. 
Um, yeah, so I, I started, I, do you want me to share a bit about? Yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit about like, up there? yeah, how you, how you got there, but also how you also made all the, the advances at Google, um, as I'm sure it's a competitive company and as a woman in tech too, like what, how was that dynamic? So yeah, so I, I decided to join Google after a few years in the photo industry. And that was at the time that the photo industry was just grappling with going digital. Um, so it was one of those scenarios where there was always a conversation about whether or not photography was an art or a science. And now it was kind of how are we going from the analog chromes to the digital space? And how do we look at that from a business lens? Um, and I think the companies that I worked for just had a very... Um, you know, hesitant approach to technology. And at my age and where I could see technology was going, that just wasn't something that I felt was aligned with what my goals were. Um, so I found a company named Google. I was most intrigued, frankly, because I read an article that they gave away free ice cream on Fridays. And I was like, this company sounds great. And I lobbed in my resume. Um, and my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was like, do you have any idea what they actually do? And I was like, no, but a Ben and Jerry's truck pulls up every Friday and there's free ice cream. <laughs> so eventually I figured out what it was that Google did. And I'm sure I answered it much more eloquently in my interview as to why I wanted to work there. Um, but I started in very early days out in um, our Mountain View headquarters. And it was, you know, we were growing so quickly and we just had a bunch of, you know, young professionals just starting their career running this business. I was always on the advertising side and just kind of figuring out how to make the policies as we were, you know, growing our advertising base. How do we scale the teams? How do we, you know, grow without hiring excessively fast because we didn't want to go through layoffs after the first dot-com boom. Um, so we were just kind of was very early days, very scrappy, um, but just the, the learnings there. I always say I don't have an MBA, but I have a Google MBA because the learnings that we had just growing and building that business and our teams and how you establish a team culture and how you cultivate careers. And there was just so many lessons um, and just really exciting times. Um, and I think, you know, my Navigating through Google has been challenging. I think I've been lucky to more or less grow up there professionally in that I have a pretty broad network across the company. Um, a lot of those folks have actually left the company that I've known. So I've been able to establish a pretty broad network across tech in general. Um, and it just kind of helps you keep your pulse on, keep the pulse of what's going on in other corners, either of the company or other corners of the business. Um, and so I think, the, the biggest key to success for me has been relationships, mm -hmm. um, whether it's the partners that I'm working with, whether it's um, mentors or sponsors within Google, whether it's um, colleagues, just really keeping those relationships tight and making sure that, um, you know, you just continue to connect with people. And so I, you know, it's kind of seemed like every two years I've had a new job at Google and having been there almost it's over 15 years now. Um, it just seems, you know, some of it is the evolution of the business naturally as we grow or acquire new assets that we integrate into our offerings and what types of opportunities that, you know, presents. Um, others have been a full shift in roles. So times that I just wanted to try something new or times that, um, you know, I had one instance where we had a reorg and uh, this was many, many years ago. And I say it's the first time that Google broke my heart, but we had a reorg. I really didn't like the way it shook out for me personally. Um, and I ended up reaching out to a friend of mine in a different group. And within two weeks, uh, I was hired into her team. And I always looked back on that experience and thought, you know, there were probably lessons there that I could have learned if I stuck it out for six months just to see where things shook up. So I kind of committed to myself that the next time you know, there was a reorg and, and things didn't shake out exactly how I wanted to, I would stick it out and see what kind of lessons and what kind of growth I could have personally and professionally through that experience. Um, I'm now about 20 reorgs past that, but <laughs> it was a good, it was a good life lesson that it doesn't always shake out how you want it. But um, I think the energy it takes to resist those changes can kind of make you oversee what the opportunities are. 
You were interviewed on Medium last year about gender bias in the tech industry. And given now with 15 years at the one of the leading tech companies in the world, um, I'm sure you've had your run-ins with this topic. And so you said that how you have overcome any issues of gender bias um, is candor. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by candor? And what what was there an, an, an experience or a moment that really stuck out for you that uh, illustrated this? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, so by candor, I mean, I, I just, I kind of have a pretty similar mode, whether you know me in my personal life or my professional life. I, um, you know, maybe for better or worse, I'm, I'm very direct. Um, I think that people appreciate just knowing uh, where you stand. Um, and I think, I certainly think leaders appreciate when you can articulate a concern that they might be blind to. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I mean by candor. And I think I, I give feedback and I welcome feedback and um, you know, you have to be able to take it cause it's not always easy to hear. Um, so I think in my position of escalating things toward more senior leadership or having things escalated to me toward leadership, that's um, kind of been a big uh, MO of mine. Um, in terms of, you know, there's, there's a bunch of specific instances that I can think of where I've, I've faced a bias. And I think, um, what I've experienced in the vast majority of these cases is that they're not bad intentions. They're not intended to be biased. It's not people specifically saying, I don't want to put this woman on a project because she's a woman. It it becomes this kind of humanitarian like leaning where we go towards somebody that we feel like is similar to us, that we can trust, that we know their work, that maybe it's a little less work to go with the known entity than it is to take a risk on a newer entity. Um, And so I think a lot of the times that we see, you know, one of my big points is while there may not be a wage gap um, as ourselves and some other companies uh, may report or potentially a rate of promotion gap or whatever you're analyzing there, the big gap that I see is the opportunity gap. And that comes from when there's times to launch a new strategic initiative or there's times to take a big deal or there's times to host a um, you know, high profile meeting or an event or whatever it is, we tend to, as humans, take the least risky course of action because mm-hmm. then we feel like we're going to have a known outcome. And when you have a case of something like tech or Silicon Valley where these companies are predominantly male and they're predominantly white and they have a lot of people that they've grown to trust who tend to look and talk and think like them, that is a natural reaction. So I typically come to these conversations or these scenarios with a point of, you know, this may be a blind spot that you have and I want to share this with you in case it's not how you intended it to come across. Um, and I found that that type of delivery of feedback mm. has been really helpful. Um, one specific instance is there was a, a big event for a leadership team. And, you know, given the levels of leadership that were invited, it was predominantly male on the invite list. Um, and it didn't come to my attention until very close to the time of the event that you know, there were so many men representing a specific group at this uh, event because of the kind of leveling cutoff. Um, And when I raised that perspective uh, to my boss, you know, it helps to have data. Um, And when I raised that perspective to my manager at the time, um, he was like, wow, thank you for pointing that out. And I will bring this up. I don't know what we can do, but you know, this is something that we didn't look at that we should have. And this was many, many years ago, so I'm certain they do it now. Um, but ultimately, it resulted in, I think the event started on Monday, and I got like an automated uh, invite on Saturday morning, please join us across the country Monday morning. Um, and that was one of those moments where, you know, if I did not have the support I have with my husband at home, Um, I would not have been able to 
jump on a plane and head across the country. And it was, I think it was the last week of school. So of course you're missing all the stepping up ceremonies and the potlucks and all that stuff. Um, But it was one of those moments where I just looked at my husband. I'm like, I have to go. Right. And he's like, you have to go. You can't light a bomb and not throw it. You've got to go. I was like, Oh my God. Um, But you know, then I had that anger. Sorry. I was just to share, finish one thing. Like I had that anger that morning because I'm like, you know, I wasn't going to ping my assistant to book a flight on a Saturday. And I'm like, you know, all these guys that are going to this event are probably just like at their tea times, enjoying their Saturday mornings or taking their kids to swim lessons. And I'm like hustling to find a hotel and book my flight and do all these things. So it's just that added tax. Um, But some of us have to take that added tax in order to pave the way for better behaviors and better intentions in the future. Well, I just love this story for so many reasons. One, it it illustrates the receptiveness, right, that your colleagues had. And and it's nice to know that we can be we can be bold like you were in that circumstance and be rewarded for it. And I love the use of candor as a really elegant way to kind of navigate um, what is often a very complicated and taboo topic in the workplace, which is gender bias. And you did that so beautifully and it rewarded you. But I also love that story because it transitions as well into the next chapter of what I'd like to talk to you about, which is your kind of personal financial life and the complexity of being a female breadwinner. And you've been very, again, also very vocal about this. You um, run the Breadwinning Women organization at Google. um, And you're kind of seeing this take on a whole life of its own, which is what I discovered too when I came out with When She Makes More, that there are so many people that want to talk about this, but are scared or don't have the the language or um, don't feel mm-hmm. connected to anybody. And so let's start with your personal journey through this, because unlike my circumstance was that I always was the breadwinner in my marriage and it was always expected that of me, like that that was just how we how it was understood um, from the day one, your dynamic in your relationship, you call kind of like the flip family where your husband got laid off and there was a conscious decision to have him become the stay-at-home dad and you rise up as the breadwinner, sole breadwinner. So take us back to that moment. I'm sure it was a very tumultuous time and you had a lot of maybe conflicted feelings about it or not. What was that decision like for you guys? Yeah. Um, I, first of all, I love that you use the term that we just don't have the language because that is something that I realize is uh, one of the pieces of this conversation that's so critical for us to give voice to is just saying the term breadwinner, saying the term stay-at-home dad, sole breadwinner, primary parent. Um, you know, my husband says he's retired, but it took us a while to figure out what the right language and verbiage was to describe our family. Um, and I think that is where, you know, you just start to feel all the holes in explaining how your family unit works. Um, so I think language is a really important part of this entire topic. So thanks for highlighting that. Um, so just back to, I think it was 2012. So I had just come back to work from my second maternity leave. So I have two kids. I have a 12 year old son and a seven year old daughter. Um, And I'd come back from my second maternity leave and, uh, you know, my husband was laid off, as you said. Um, Now, up until this time, we were, you know, dual income family, our entire relationship. And then since we were parents, um, when we moved from California to New York, where we're both from the East Coast originally, uh, my husband's company was based far up in Connecticut. So he ended up with a full time work from home scenario, um, which was incredible because he was always able to be home, whether there was, you know, a repair to be done or a delivery to be met, or he really loves to cook. So he did a lot of all the food sourcing and the cooking. Um, You know, when a kid was sick, we were able to kind of juggle conference call slots and make it all work. So there was this baked in flexibility of our lifestyle, which we had become really accustomed to. So when his company went into chapter 11, um, we were kind of expecting that he would get laid off at some point. There was many, many rounds. And so it wasn't so shocking to our system that it happened. Um, But, you know, backing up a little bit, when we moved back to New York before we had our first child, 
we were in a very similar field, very similar roles um, and making exactly the same amount of money. Um, But then I moved, you know, I was in tech and he was in higher education publishing. And so we knew pretty early on that we were both staying with these companies for as long as we were, that my earnings potential just really outweighed what higher education publishing would pay. So we had started to, I think it was on my first maternity leave with my 12-year-old when I got promoted while on leave and my earnings went higher than my husband's. Um, But we still were dual income for several years. And then when he got laid off, we had this moment where he did start to look for another job. And we quickly realized that every other job, while maybe it was a little bit more money or at least the same amount of money that he was making, would require him to not be home. So he had to be in an office every day or at least the majority of the time. And that was a really hard pill to swallow in terms of all the stuff we would have to outsource in order to make the household run the way it did, because I don't cook. Um, I've burnt down a couple kitchens in my life. So this is, I should stay out of the kitchen. Um, so then we were like, okay, well, if we outsource somebody to pick up the kids and we outsource somebody to cook the meals or at least, you know, have somebody get it started before we come home. And then we're just starting to add everything up and it becomes a math problem. And I'm sitting at the time in an office at Google. So we all kind of sit on top of each other. I'm sitting in an office with four other dudes and all of them have stay at home lives. Hmm. And I'm like, what are we doing? You know, why doesn't this, this makes complete sense. Um, And at the time, and my husband also really doesn't, and never has really identified with his professional career as his identity. Um, Like Google is very much interwoven into who I am as an adult. And so that is a very hard thing for me to consider extrapolating from. But for my husband, he's a, you know, I said he likes to cook, he surfs, he skateboards, he's a singer songwriter. He, you know, he's got all of these different hobbies where he feels like he finds more of an identity than his professional career. So he was really open to the idea. Um, I was open to it in that I realized that it was going to make my job easier. So the challenges we had as a dual income family with two kids and the logistics that that requires was never, you know, it was never because I made more money that I did less stuff in the house. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to be equal. There were things that I did a lot more of and things that he did a lot more of. I think when you have dual income families with children, there's just so much stuff to get done that everyone inherently feels like the other person is not doing enough. (laughs) Like, I don't know if you actually scoreboarded it, who would come out on top. I know there's a lot of research that usually women come up doing more. Well, breadwinning women in particular do more. That's, that's the uh, real shocker is that when women make more, they actually do more housework than women who make the same or less. Right. And that's, I, so, and I think, and I've read that as well from you. And I, I think that's the piece where we start to get into these societal norms of masculinity and femininity and what it means and how we identify and how we kind of relieve ourselves of certain guilt in that area. Um, and men too, you know, where if they feel emasculated because they're not contributing financially to the household, do they then, you know, take it in the reverse action to, mm-hmm. to kind of almost take it out or to fight it and resist it? Um, it's, it's a fast, that's a fascinating dynamic. I I think for us, you know, it, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I think for us, it became like a very natural decision and it seemed to kind of mesh with, you know, both our lifestyle and also who we were as people, um, in terms of how we thought about our career and how we thought about our family and obviously having the luxury to financially be able to have one of us stay home, um, But I think what we weren't entirely prepared for was how everyone else would react Mm -hmm. once we made this decision. That's really interesting Mm because I I know that your husband experienced, uh, you know, what you talked about, some of the machoism and that, um, yeah, traditional expectation of men to be out there providing. And, you know, that means usually financial providing. I know that there's an interesting story there, but once one step before that, I want to ask if I may about 
there's a lot of different complexities, unique complexities, whether you're a dual income family or a single income family with a stay-at-home parent. I would love to know how the two of you have managed to secure your finances in such a way where if you, God forbid, lost your job, Bethany, what would happen? Because um, I feel for me, I... I thought about this with my own husband and we've talked about this, you know, should he stay at home? And for us, I think it's important for him, no matter what he's making, to be out there working, if for no other reason, just to be able to counterbalance the financial pressures of just having one person be the sole breadwinner, right? One person being the breadwinner, one person bringing home a paycheck. Um, there are other reasons too why we ultimately decided on not having him be a stay-at-home dad, but I always go back to the risk, right, of what happens if I lose my job or I don't make any income. Of course, we have savings, but it's a lot more pressure on me. Um, and so yeah. wondering how the two of you navigated that aspect. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a thought-provoking question. And I think in in some of these instances, we've, you know, we always tried to live below our means. Um, so for a very long time, we were living well below our means. Um, for better or worse, over the next, the past few years, uh, particularly as children get older and uh, private school tuitions are a must and more space is a must and parents are aging um, it's gotten a lot more, you know, it's just one of those cash strap times of our lives um, where there's a lot of financial demands on us as a family. Um, I think for me, the value has always been that I know what my lane is and my lane is my career and my lane is to, you know, earn and to make sure that I'm maximizing the opportunities I have available in that sense for my family. And then everything else is my husband, right? So, summer camps and making sure they have the right size sneakers and talking to the track coach and doing all of those things is in my husband's camp. And so in many ways, we are actually more traditional than not in that, like, I'm more the dude, right? The traditional dude who comes <laughs> home and, you know, my husband calls me, he has a joke where he calls me Steve. He's like, I feel like I live with like a roommate, Steve, because the only thing I cook is fried eggs and I like splatter the oil everywhere and I just leave the thing on the th on the counter and walk away. And he's like, Steve, just like you're disgusting. <laughs> so it, we have a lot of these jokes where, you know, I'll be doing the power drill out back while he's making Sunday sauce. And it just it works for us. Um, I think, look, the fear of losing my job and what is that oh shit plan has been something that I you know, we could do a whole nother podcast on relationships with money. It's something that I've always had this undercurrent of stress in my life. Like, okay, mm -hmm. if this all goes bust, what do we do? Mm -hmm. um, and I think in many ways, like what's tying us to New York, what's tying us to the super expensive city, what's tying us to the super expensive lifestyle is Google. So, you know, there's always been a part of me where I'm like, okay, if that goes bust, we get to reimagine this whole thing. And like you said, we have savings, we have investments, like we have pieces of, of the pie that we can cash out and rethink what our whole next step of life could be. And so I think the way that I deal with the stress of that, you know, which is the same stress that generations of men before us have had um, is to say like, you know, to kind of give myself that freedom, like, well, then I can just cut bait and make this look totally different. And may we go live with our friends in Costa Rica for a year and the kids learn Spanish and then we figure out what's not, you know, there's, I don't have an innate kind of fear that I couldn't reinvent myself. Right. It just doesn't probably wouldn't look like this. And I kind of feel okay with that. Well, it sounds like you've gone through the thought process, which is great. And you're, you're, you're at peace with it. Yeah. And I, you know, also I think I'm in a very, um, you know, knock on any wood that's around me right now. I'm in a fortunate position. I've been with a company for a very long time. I feel very well taken care of. There's a lot of things that are known and secure about that, um, which I hope I'm not jinxing it right now, but that's knocking on wood. Plays a huge part. Yes, I'm, I'm knocking all over my butcher block right now. Um, but, it, you know, it's one of those things that if, you know, if I was in a different industry where I was changing roles every two years or mm -hmm. I had, um, frankly, a company that I work for that I didn't believe as much as I do in the people that are there that are running it that are doing really great things and and not all of them right Google's imperfect just like any other company. 
But if I didn't have that type of security, I think it would make this all look a bit different. If your husband was on the show, I'd ask him this question, but he's not. So I'll ask you, how does he, how has he come to grow into this role? And obviously there's been some, you know, stupid stuff said along the way, like, I don't think he's alone here. A lot of stay-at-home dads get the, well, when are you going back to work? Or, you know, mm-hmm. why don't you just get a half- part-time job? Or what are you going to do when the kids are in school? It's it's not unlike questions that maybe a stay-at-home mom might get where, where it's like, well, what are you going to do when the kids go back to school? But it's patriarchal, really, when they ask that of the man. And so yeah. how has your husband navigated that? And what would he say to those kinds of affronts? Yeah, so I, I actually wrote a piece for Refinery29 with a term that we've coined, we've coined called momsplaining, where, you know, he just gets the, the double standard of advice that comes to him as a primary parent, stay-at-home parent versus what you would say to a stay-at-home mom is there's a massive double standard. And there's a lot of things that, you know, people will say to him like, oh, you've won the lottery or that's awesome. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. And Whereas for a stay-at-home mom, you'd say, oh, my God, I hope he's getting you a massage. You must be so tired. So glad the kids are back in school. You finally get a break. You know, it's just a very different narrative. Um, And I'm speaking in, in, you know, generalizations. Of course, there's always exceptions. Um, But I think for him, look, it was very isolating in the beginning when the kids were young. And everywhere he went, it was just, you know, either him and the nannies or him and the moms. And... Um, We had a couple instances where even women wouldn't let their children, their daughters come to play dates with my daughter unless I was home. And that was, I think that was the hardest part where it was just making this assumption that was just so uh, hurtful, but also just so, uh, so much awareness of the discomfort that society generally had with our roles. Um, So that was really, I, I think, it was more acute when the children were younger and he was much, you know, it's either that people have gotten used to our, our family setup and how it works now. Um, but there were several moments where it was just very isolating. Um, and, you know, you, you can have those days where you feel really deflated, like what you're doing is wrong or what you're doing is um, abnormal or, um, you know, and I think just having the confidence that he's had, one, to not identify with, you know, being a financial provider for his family. And, you know, he is very proud that he worked for 17 years and he has significant savings and he contributes to our household with those. And um, but having that under his belt, I think, has been a big source of pride, as well as just being really sure that this is what he wanted to do. Right. And so when you were saying before, you know, it's I think people who are put in these positions that don't feel that confidence that this is how they want to spend their life, that can be a recipe for disaster. Um, it's not for everybody, for sure. Just like um, I'm sure you think, would not be happy not working, right? Being a, even a part-time um, worker slash, you know, homemaker. I think you're absolutely right that in particular, when you have kind of life happened for you, whether it's a layoff or there is an, an, a life occurrence where the, the economic dynamics of the family become suddenly in flux. It's really important to revisit kind of like what are your sources of of your ego, frankly, right? And of like what makes you feel at whole, like whole and what makes you feel like yourself and what make, would make you feel like a productive member of the family. Figuring out yeah. what those roles are plural are, as opposed to like that singular role of breadwinner is very, very important. It's, it's a good exercise for everybody. I think like every few years, even regardless of what's happening in the job market or whatever, because we, we evolve as humans, right? Like I might enter a marriage really looking forward to nesting and raising a family. And then I want to, you know, get an MBA, <laughs> you know, and like totally flip the right. equation that should be allowed. And it's also, I mean, you're you know, anyone that's been married more than a hot minute knows you're not married to the same person you walk down the aisle right. with, right? Like life right. changes, things evolve. And, you know, I had a moment last week where our basement flooded and my family is down at the beach for the summer. So I came home expecting like a relaxing night by myself and all of a sudden it's a river in my basement. And I just had that moment where I was like, 
oh, there's no other adult here to deal with this. Like, I just have to do it. I have to be the person that takes care of this right now. And like, that's kind of a metaphor for life. You just look around like, okay, this is what needs to get done. And again, I recognize we are in a place of privilege that we're able to live the life we have with one of us not working, um, but just adjusting to it. And and I honestly, before I had my children, had no idea that being a working mom would work for me. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I had no, you just have no idea how you're going to um, adjust at those moments. You know, I remember even when I got hired at Google, I was like, okay, well, I'm fully, when I'm fully vested, that's when we'll have our kid and then I'll stop working. Mm-hmm. You know, so I never really planned any of this in, in some ways. Um, and I think that's kind of why life is exciting, right? You just kind of change and evolve. And I think that's why, you know, your question earlier about, well, what if this all goes bust? Sorry. <laughs> maybe it should be more scary. No, but maybe it should be more scary to me than it is. But it's just like, okay, well, as long as we're healthy and, you know, fortunately we've been able to set up things that would let us live a full life, maybe somewhere more cheap, mm-hmm. then, you know, then you just adjust with that. And that's part of your family's journey. And I think that's interesting. There's always um, like North Carolina or I just exactly. met a, I just met a couple that's like, we're moving to Savannah, you know, a Brooklyn family. I love Savannah. Yeah, so like we work remotely. Yeah, so and- that's the thing. It's like you just you can't be averse to change. Um, and, you know, there's moments with my husband, too. We joke. He So he doesn't have any. Ta- he didn't have any tattoos. Um, but then a couple of years ago, he started to he got my initial on his wedding finger because he never wears his wedding ring. And then he got something for my kids on his other knuckles. And I was like, oh, this is your insurance policy that you're never going to go back to the corporate world because now you have knuckle tattoos. <laughs> and like, that was our big joke that like, right, he's really embracing this role. Um, but it's true. I mean, he has moments where he's like, should I get a job? And he's like, I don't even know what I would do. Why would, I don't know. You know, like, I'm like, I don't know. You want to work at like a seafood shop? Do you want it? Like, what would make you feel like good or what would be entertaining for you. And like, Mm -hmm. so he thinks about it or, Mm -hmm. you know, thinks about starting up his own gym or doing things like that. And I encourage him, but at the same rate, the kids are a ton of work and he's a super present dad and he's able to be at all the track practices and all the trapeze classes and, you know, all of these things that it's really valuable for us as a family to know that our kids are able to look out and see somebody there. It's just not mom. I love that uh, with all of this experience now, you are almost peeing it forward at Google and, and creating a community for women there who may be on their way to becoming the breadwinners, are the breadwinners. I, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the subset of women who are making the big salaries at Google and are dating or are in relationships where maybe there is a little bit of uncertainty around how they're going to navigate the economics because maybe they're dating somebody who doesn't like the idea of having a female breadwinner. I mean, those people exist. I've interviewed them. Yep. And and so what are the conversations you're having and what is the advice for them? Yeah. So what's been really interesting. So I started this community um, about nine months ago and it literally was, I mean, the most grassroots of things you could have in that we I had lunch with a friend who, you know, we were talking about being breadwinners and she said, you know, I've never met anyone that talks about it as boldly as you do. And it was a funny comic. So I was like, why is there something to be ashamed of? Um, But I understand where she was coming from. It just struck me. And I was like, there's more of us than you think there are. Like I know so many women here that when I speak to them about my experience, they share theirs, but we're not all talking to one another. Um, so I just started an email, Elliot, it's a group, and I invited the few women that I knew, and then we sent it off to a couple other of uh, the employee resource groups, if anybody's interested in this. Well, now we're well over 1,100 members. We're in 45 different offices across 15 different countries, um, and that's just within Google Walls, just totally grassroots over the past uh, nine months, and we have new signups every single day. Um, what surprised me about this community is there's a lot of women in it that were like, um, am I the breadwinner? I don't know. Cause my husband works or mm. I'm single or, you know, I don't have kids, but I'm taking care of my parents. And so we kind of moved the definition to, this is a community for any woman who is financially leading her household, right? So yeah. whether or not you're in a same sex relationship, whether or not you're widowed or divorced, whether or not you are caring for elderly parents, 
Um, and we have a lot of single women. Um, in particular, I think some of the topics we've discussed include, you know, resources for prenups. Um, how do you talk with your partner about money? So that's a super interesting topic to me as well. It's just everyone's emotional relationship with money because we come into adulthood with a different relationship, either based on how we were raised or what our parents' relationship was with money, whether we had too much, had too little, didn't even think about it, you know, thought about it every day. And then all of a sudden you're meshed with some other person that you now have to either share or consider your money together and, you know, so now you have all these different factors of the emotion of money coming into play. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, people just don't think a lot about before you're getting married, right? You think about all these other things, whether it's religious values, whether it's family values, whether it's location, whether it's attraction, you know, all of these other things, but your emotional relationship with money is such an important thing to uncover. So I look at these women and I am just so proud that they're having this self-awareness now at this stage of their life as they're either, you know, exploring the dating pool or thinking about getting more serious in a relationship. Um, but I think they, you know, some of the things that they're grappling with is, yes, these, you know, the, these scenarios. And, and it's not just men that don't want a female breadwinner. There's a lot of women that didn't want this for their life either. Yes. yes. Um, because there is a loss of flexibility and freedom. And, you know, I can speak from experience too, like my appetite for risk with my career, right? I can't take a 50% pay cut for a startup and hope that I make millions. I just can't do that in my life, you know? And, and so that's, a risk that I see other people who are in my position are able to do, um, or I've decided that I'm not able to do that, I should say, um, or willing, I guess is the right word. So I think, you know, I think these women are struggling with, you know, all of the things that anyone who's even been in a breadwinning relationship for decades would, you know, is this the right thing for our family? Does my partner feel fulfilled? How do we approach conversations about money? How do I protect my assets getting into these relationships? How do I, you know, really even like there's a woman that I know who's in her 40s and she's single and she's like, you know, my dating pool is already so small. Now I got to worry about someone who's threatened by a successful woman, too. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's like all these factors are compiling for these women. Um, and what's important is to make sure that they're able to find and support one another. Um, and to look forward to, you know, I have a lot of women who are, you know, in their early 30s or something who may have just started a family or starting to think about family planning and may have just become the breadwinner and didn't expect to, right? Like a lot of women who are married to lawyers or, you know, other people who had professions where they expected a different lifestyle than they're facing right now. Whereas if I can provide the glimpse forward of this can work out, you know, there's certainly bumps and ego bruises along the way, like there is in any decision in life, but this can work for you. Um, I think that just provides just kind of hope that there is, there is a path forward or there is, you know, an understanding that this is complex, but it can work. Um, I personally, my entire time that I've worked at Google, I've never reported into a working mom, including yeah. now my entire 12 years of being a mother. Um, and that is hard, right? There's no visible, you know, I think, uh, Gina Davis's, uh, Institute, her, her tag is, you know, if you can't, you can't be it if you can't see it. And so it's hard to kind of blaze a trail. Not that I'm the first working mom at Google by any means. Um, but from what I could see in my direct line of, of, of managers and, um, you know, kind of what I saw as a possible path for me. So that's really my hope for these single women in this community or for these women who are just finding themselves in this situation to have that sense of, you know, this, this can work out and we're going to be fine. They're going to see it and, you know, be and it. not everybody's going to be, not everyone's going to be fine. <laughs> like you can be. You yeah. Know? I'm just going to be the bearer of bad news on this podcast, but it is statistically said that women who make more, uh, their, their marriages are more prone to divorce. But I mean, money is always a leading cause of stress in any relationship, 
any kind of money, any kind of money issues. And so this, again, being a topic that, yes, it's related to money, but it's really a hard topic because we don't have, first of all, the role models to actually believe that our circumstance can be winnable. Um, we also may not have the language and the communication skills in general to talk about money. So when you add this additional layer of complexity, it becomes really like uh, a, a really hard topic to navigate. Um, but you're doing such incredible work, Bethany. I'm so honored to connect with you. And you know, you are starting resources for not just people, uh, women at Google, but outside as well. You have a platform, Working Wife Happy com, which I want everyone to check out and subscribe. And I'm sure this is going to grow um, as, as you're getting the word out there. There's also my book, When She Makes More. There's Facebook groups. I mean, I think what's important for everyone to learn is that they don't have to go through this in a silo, that there are a lot of people out there having this conversation and it's just a matter of tapping in. Yes. And, and I think once you create the space for this conversation, once you kind of neutralize the topic, um, our, our first event that we did, there was about 100 or 150 women in the room. And these are women I've known for decades, and they've known each other for decades. And they came into the room and they looked across the room at each other and said, Oh, you're the breadwinner. Oh, yeah. So it's once you get into this room and you neutralize that we're all there for the same reason, mm-hmm. that's when it gets real. And that's when people feel like, okay, I'm going to sit up a little bit straighter in my chair because I'm proud that I'm doing this. And look at all these incredible women around me that are doing it as well. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's at least a start, right? There's a lot of resources that need to still be outlined for, for men um, and for couples and, you know, for empty nesting stay-at-home dads. There's a whole different piece of this that, you know, we, we focus a lot on empty nesting for women. Um, so there's a lot more pieces of this conversation that need to to happen. But I'm a firm believer back to the language, um, as well as the space and the candor that once you just start opening the doors for this type of stuff is when we'll we'll learn more about it. And we'll just feel it will be as normal as it's starting to become with 41 percent of American households being financially led by women. We're not certainly not alone. We're not alone. We're rising. Well, before yeah. we go, just one last financial question, some advice maybe to uh, to share with our listeners. I'm asking all of our guests um, in this month about what is something that you do in your household with your money that allows you to feel financially secure? And this is a question that we're asking in partnership with our sponsor, Chase. So what is a, a habit, a system you have in place, maybe some a ritual that you practice that helps you achieve financial security in your in your household, in your life? I'm trying to think of what a good one to, to choose. I mean, one thing I certainly do is I maximize every benefit that I have through my company. Um, so any type of... It's more uh, than just ice cream, I hear. It's, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, there's a lot more than ice cream, especially nowadays. Um, but yeah, so I just really try to maximize those things. So we we have a, a running joke in our house that, you know, our, our 60-year-old self will thank you for this. Um, you know, maybe you're taking more cash away from the pile month to month, but you're putting it into something that long-term is going to pay back in dividends. So I think that's always a helpful peace of mind that even if you're not saving as much as you want to from a month to month basis, like I said, there's times in life where you're just going to be cash strapped. If you are investing toward the future, then you know, you always have, um, that piece of stability there. Um, and you know, I think the other thing too, is my, my husband will, Every month, he kind of does a kind of net worth analysis just to make sure that we're on track with where we want to go and, you know, just help us feel that relief that the whole the whole view is good, even if maybe, you know, one month is tighter than the mm-hmm. next or, you know, the unexpected. I used to joke when I was in my 20s, there was always something unexpected that was like 100 or 200 bucks every month. You know, it was just something went wrong or something needed to be fixed. And then the older you get, the more zeros go on that, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of a sudden it's like there's a $20,000 house repair that you weren't expecting. And you're just like, oh my God, okay. So, you know, those things are going to happen and they're, they can stress you out. They can become a big source of strain in a relationship. 
Um, they can make you feel like, you know, crap, we can't go on that vacation because we have to fix the roof. Um, and, and those are things that I think can make you feel really derailed. But if you're taking that step back regularly to look at the big picture and you're making those sound financial investments for the future, it can just alleviate the, the, the stress, the day-to-day stress. I like that a lot. It's important for all of us to remember, I, and myself included, to keep that big picture view because you're absolutely right. When you're in it and it's a Wednesday and you know, you're, the deductions are going left and right, um, it's, it's, it can feel like you're going backwards in, in your progress. But um, I love – Mint has a great um, net worth total calculation that it's – for nothing else, that's always fun to check in and make sure – it's going in the right direction yeah. over time. And over especially time. there's there's times in life, right? There's times in life where you feel like, you know, everything is just going so smoothly. And then whether it's the ages of your kids, like I said, or the parents or, you know, I'm in the sandwich generation and it's real, right? Like you've got young kids, you've got aging parents, you're trying to make everything work and you're, you know, kind of stuck in the middle. But and, and so you just have to recognize that there's those times of life that are going to feel different and that's expected versus making it making you feel frantic about it. Um, and, you know, I have to take my own advice sometimes, too. It's, right. It's <laughs> not every day I can have that sensibility about it. There's one look, where's all our money? It's all gone. <laughs> and then it's tomorrow and it's a different, it's a new day. Bethany, thank you so much exactly. for coming on the show and being so incredibly honest with your path and your journey and your thoughts on all of the matters pertaining to, you know, rising through your career as a woman in tech to running your household and, um, your relationship with your husband. We really are grateful for all of the work and the leadership that you provide. And you have a language for this that is so accessible and important for families and households and couples as they may or may not evolve into this, you know, dynamic, but it's just a kind of a modern kind of money language for, for couples, which I think is so needed. So congrats and, and keep it up. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And thanks for all your kind words. You can learn more about Bethany on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as her site, bethanybaines.com. For all of this and more, check out somoneypodcast.com. And remember, I'm taking your money questions for our Friday episodes. So find me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi and send me a direct message and I will be in touch. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money.